0: This is the Trout Bitten Podcast.
1: Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout.
0: Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Pitten Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Dominic Swentoski. I'm the owner of Trout Pitten and the author of Troutbitten.com. All right, welcome back, friends. This is episode four of our Trout Pitten Skills series covering critical nymphing concepts. And tonight, we're here to consider the three ways of dead drifting nymphs. Now, if you just jumped on this podcast, if you just found Trout Pitten, well, we're glad you're here. You can get a lot from this topic, from this episode alone, but you might enjoy going back to the beginning of the skills series and catching up on the other concepts. Each of the episodes in our Trout Pitten Skills series dovetails in with the others, and the idea here is to get tightly focused on narrow subjects. We like the details. So back in July of last year, I published an article to Trout Pitten that covered what just might be the most important concept in nymphing. That article is titled Nymphs, Three Ways to Dead Drift. And it spawned some great conversation with a lot of deep thoughts from anglers who either thought about things differently, or maybe had never thought about any of this at all. One of the coolest things about the Trout Pitten Project is that I've been writing and publishing for almost 10 years now, stories, commentaries, tactics, and reviews. And probably about half of the tactics stuff relates to nymphing. So hundreds of articles then have kind of laid a foundation for those three ways to dead drift. And now we're doing the same thing here. You can absolutely jump in right now right at this podcast and get a lot out of it. But I will say I mean we should acknowledge what we're talking about tonight is not the first thing to tackle while nymphing. However these concepts are for everyone who throws a nymph in the water. I think they always apply whether we realize what we're really doing or not. So three ways to dead drift a nymph. If we acknowledge the goal of drifting our flies naturally with the current, then we also start to realize there are a few different natural looks to the fly. Three different ways that trout see real nymphs and eat them. We can imitate those three looks with many different nymphing rigs as long as we know our goal, right? So these three ways to dead drift are bottom bouncing, strike zone rides, and tracking. This is one of my favorite topics. There's a lot here, and we'll get this kicked off in a moment. But let me first introduce my friend, fishing buddy, and travel companion, Staff Sergeant for Trout and Media, Austin Dando.
1: Hey, now. How are we doing?
0: There he is. Doing well, Staff Sergeant.
1: <laughs> so this week, instead of being uh, bureaucratic, I'm a militant. Mm-hmm. Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. How do you like the new software, though? I like it. It seems like there's a lot of good potential that, uh, you know, we didn't have available to us before. A lot of good options for live streaming. I'm pretty excited for that. Yeah. So yeah, Austin
0: and I are uh, playing around with a new piece of software that will allow us to live stream. And yeah, so that's part of the plan for 2024. We're going to do live stream podcasts with uh, some of your favorite personalities, let's say, in the industry, and then some of our favorite people. Yeah. Some names maybe you don't know either. And uh, you'll be able to jump in live and ask questions and comment and react. Give us a hard time, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's going to be fun to bring in those guests and, uh, I don't know, just to uh, hear, you know, just to connect with everybody out there.
1: Yeah. Keeps it fresh for us, too, you know, to be Mm -hmm. something completely different that we haven't done or or seen yet. And and, uh, we get to enjoy it just as much as uh, those who get to participate um, digitally. So,
0: Yeah, that's for sure. We're looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's going to be very different. Uh, it's going to be a different experience for us and for you guys. I should say, too, we're still going to do the same lineup that we usually do. And then we're just going to add these in once in a while. We'll see how it goes. It's something new. And the software is new. Mm. <laughs> everything looks different. Everything's, uh, everything has changed. Got to get used to it. All right, let's do this. So we've acknowledged before that nymphing is the most complex tactic in fly fishing. We had a whole podcast about that. Like, what's harder? And a dead drift is the most common goal with our nymph, but there are three distinct ways to achieve it. Bottom bouncing, strike zone rides, and tracking the flies. And each of these tactics does simulate something that a trout sees every day. Each can fairly be described as a dead drift because the actual bugs are doing things that look just like this down there, like each one of those three ways. But often, just one of these presentations is the most agreeable approach to the trout. And all of them can look like a natural dead drift. So, Austin, have you run into this distinction before, kind of three different ways to dead drift?
1: I don't think I have as, as we've got it broken down, yeah. or at least as you have it uh, kind of uh, fleshed out there. I think people tend to, to stick to one method or maybe teach one method more than others instead yeah. of showing three different layers it might be possible. So uh, I think this is a little different.
0: I think it is. I think it is. And I didn't really even start thinking about this way myself until, I don't know, five or six years ago. Mm. Um, we talked not too long ago in our podcast, about your frame of reference. Wherever you get into fly fishing, that's normal, right? That's normal to you. And you can look back at old books and see that nobody was talking about this. Um, I, I hear a little bit of it now, like exactly what are you trying to achieve with those nymphs? And we've been talking about that, not only in this skills series, but for a long time, right? So, nymphing presents endless variables. There's so many different things that we can do with that nymph and so many different elements that we're dealing with. So we should learn all the variations. Those variations, those three ways to dead drift are, number one, getting all the way to the riverbed, touching with the weight with the flies themselves, and we'll call that bottom bouncing. I think that was the most common for the longest time. I think it probably still is. So bottom bouncing, and we'll get to it.
1: Yeah, so number two would be gliding nymphs through the strike zone for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, the strike zone is a relatively small cushion of water, usually above the riverbed between six to 12 inches or so. Um, and we'll call that method strike zone rides.
0: Right. And we talk a lot about the strike zone on this podcast. I write about it a lot. And I know that you and I are both thinking about it a lot when we're nymphing. Mm -hmm. Even if the strike zone isn't my goal necessarily, even if even if it isn't my target zone, I'm still thinking about it. Am I lower than the strike zone really? Or am I above it? Oh, it's that reference. So the third way then is casting generally lighter nymphs or weights upstream and letting the river push the flies back downstream, which we're casting upstream with the other methods too. But we're kind of letting the river make more of the decisions with this third way. We let the river make more of the decisions than we do. And we call this tracking the flies. So I'll say it again. All of these are dead drifts. There's not just one way. And all of these methods of nymphing can be done with a tight line or with an indicator. Although a tight line setup provides more control, that's for sure. And all of these methods can dramatically outpace the others at any given time. And all three are legitimate representations of what a trout sees down there. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do know what you mean. And, and those three representations change throughout the day. They mm. uh, change day to day. They change seasonally. So it's good to be able to be versatile with those three representations.
0: Totally agree. Yeah, trout are seeing in all three things. Like you said, that's a good point. It'll change throughout the day, the moment, whatever it is. It's good to be able to adapt. And I think we should point out, it's easiest to see the dead drift on a dry fly. And there's really only one way to drift that dry fly. If you're going to dead drift it, and there's only one way. There's one surface, right? And that's where the dry fly needs to be. But as soon as you go underneath, things get more complicated, which is why there really are three different ways. It's not just three zones. and We're going to talk about mm-hmm. how all this connects. All right, let's do it then. So bottom bouncing.
1: All right. You know, let's think about nymphs. They, they spend most of their time and most of their lives crawling around on the river bottom, uh, on river rocks, tree parts, things like that. Um, these nymphs, when they let go or get dislodged by something for a variety of different reasons, you know, fast currents, bad footing, uh, hmm. Some sort of behavioral. <laughs> feet. Yeah, you know, they <laughs> might not be as sticky as they were a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, anything like that. But once they're free from the bottom, those nymphs, they try to get back down. Uh, mm. Unless they're emerging to the surface, they're trying to regain that footing, regain that contact at the river bottom. <laughs> With their feet? <laughs> I, I like to think
0: of, like they touch and go, right? Little their heads. If Yeah, with their little foot pads, <laughs> They lift off the rocks for a variety of reasons. There's something called behavioral drift that they they do supposedly almost every night. You know, they kind of relocate. Uh, obviously, they'll get knocked around. For many reasons, a nymph is dislodged from its, its home there underneath. And yeah, when they're going to emerge too. But let's say it's dislodged and then the nymph's trying to get back down to its home. If it's not time to emerge, it's trying to get back down there and like i said like touch and go with its little feet <laughs> you could i'm sure you can find videos of this too of nymphs just kind of rolling around down there bouncing around from rock to rock and finally you know they they are able to really cling to the next rock or the next tree part and they just sure. or they just run right into it so there is some bouncing going around down there does but does that look like our weighted fly bouncing or like a split shot bouncing probably not you know because the nymphs are neutrally buoyant right And we can only really imitate that so much. That's kind of our handicap that we have to deal with. We're fishing with weight. The nymphs don't really weigh anything. Can we really get that natural look? Well, yes. But we have to kind of acknowledge uh,
1: what that difficulty is. Right. And not just weight even. We talked about before the tippet is also part of the factor there. And how much, uh, how supple or how stiff that tippet can be also affects what that bottom bounce looks or, or that split shot, it might rotate around that weight on the bottom. It's uh, not always predictable uh, exactly with, with mm-hmm. whatever currents or um, conditions are, are on the riverbed.
0: Yeah. So bottom bouncing also slows the flies down. It's not just about the bouncing effect. <laughs> I'm not really trying to hit the bottom very much even when I'm bottom bouncing necessarily. It's more about that really slow crawl that we can right get. You, you get to choose the speed because you're using the friction of the riverbed to kind of put the brakes on the drift a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, the description could be a little confusing. So when we say bottom bouncing, mm. it's not like it's, it's hitting rock bottom and we're getting snagged up a little bit and then we're popping it up again and you know, until it's dropping right. down, getting snagged up, and then we're trying to get it into the drift again. It's, really, it's trying to keep it inside the drift and still moving while at the same time just occasionally touching down. Yeah. and then continuing on with the current. It's not, a, not always a full stop. It's, it's very momentary. Right on. And then really being able to slow that drift
0: down, depending on where you are and exactly what the riverbed is, your nymph is still in the strike zone a lot of times. So we really can reach a slower speed and still really be in the strike zone too. The nymph, we can get everything to really slow down because we're aiming for that bottom. But like you said, it's not like we're scraping and cr- you know, scraping and dragging things around. Right. So the right. nymph really does spend a lot of time in the strike zone, just maybe the lower part of it. Well, if you're using a second nymph and maybe a nymph up above the the point fly, then you could have two flies perhaps in the strike zone. And think about this, your upper fly, let's say it's riding 20, 24 inches up even. Then you might have your lower fly bottom bouncing and crawling down there, going real slow and your upper fly is going real slow too because it's being bossed around by what the lower fly is doing. So your upper fly might be out of the strike zone it Gone slower than the strike zone speed. Now that can be a very, <laughs> right, yeah, a very tantalizing yeah, look for the fish. We see that work a lot. Mm-hmm. You really can't get this slow any other way from our position. When you're throwing the nymph upstream and letting it come back to you, you can't decide that you want it to go slower. You can allow it to happen. That's the way we like to talk about it. Allow it to get to get down there deeper and slower. You can make it go faster, but you can't almost deliberately make it go slower. You can let it get deeper and let it get down there. And like we say, use the bottom, that friction of the bottom to really slow things down.
1: Right. And throughout a drift, those taps or ticks, and that's kind of, again, what I'm describing is just feeling the slight contact with a a rock or a high part of the river and and continuing Mm -hmm. on the drift. That could happen up to a dozen times in a drift. And to be able to get a, a drift that it's full of those momentary touches and uh, contacts, but still not getting hung up, yeah. requires a little bit of luck, a little bit of situational awareness <laughs> yeah. and uh, a little bit of skill too. It does. But when you get that dialed in, uh, it, it's kind of magical.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of magic. <laughs> so we really do learn to keep those nymphs coming along and then good things follow. Let's uh, dig into the rigging for bottom bouncing real quick. The specifics of the fly selection matter here, or the weight selection. The truth is, when I really want to bottom bounce, these days I most often choose a drop shot rig. Now, you don't have to, because there are plenty of good ways to achieve similar results with weighted flies only. I use traditional split shot with unweighted flies. I mentioned that. It's kind of my second favorite way of doing things. But weighted flies can work fine as well. If you're using weighted flies to do a bottom bouncing approach, you definitely want flies that invert. Yeah. And then really, I'd say choose a piece of riverbed that is not real sticky, that's not full of wood and a whole bunch of very, you know, big rocks that, you, that you're just going to hang up on. Yeah, a little more uniform. Mm-hmm. Around here, we don't always have that, which is why I tend to really love drop shot for this kind of approach.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Less risk.
0: Yeah, but you don't have to. I, I was out there fishing today, and I was easily no, weighted… Yes, I was. I took my dog. <laughs> yeah, we went for we went for a couple hours. There were like five people out there. Was there? It was warm. It was. This is not winter time, but it's Thursday. Yeah, I didn't expect there to be five people out mm. there. I mean, I, I went to a popular area, but oh, what are we on February first? There shouldn't yeah. have been that many people. But you're right. It's warm, and this isn't even winter. I was I too. I had two layers on, and I was too hot. I can't stand that. I know it's dumb. Bring snow. Bring 15 degrees. Mm-hmm. The landscape is changing for trout anglers. No doubt you've already noticed another truck at your favorite access point and seen more anglers on the water. For those looking for new challenges and fishing opportunities, Trout Routes has the data to help you avoid the crowds and explore new public water. Trout Routes has mapped more than 50,000 trout streams across the country with curated, detailed maps of public land and access points. Trout Routes has developed integrated and interactive data, putting the tools in your hands to research new water and help you navigate in the wild to know exactly where you stand in the current. It's still up to you to find those deep pools and undercuts, but Trout Routes helps you get on the water, connecting you with resources like fly shops and stream gauges for trout water across the country. Download Trout Routes in the App Store today and visit TroutRoutes.com to learn more. For over a decade, Smith Creek has helped anglers just like you to free up your hands, hold your gear within easy reach, and keep our waters clean. Smith Creek's family of patented accessories are tested guide-tough and backed by good old-fashioned customer service. Crafted from rugged materials like anodized marine-grade aluminum and UV-resistant nylon, Smith Creek products are hand-assembled with pride and built to last. To stay up to date on their latest specials and new product releases, be sure to follow Smith Creek on Instagram at smithcreeknz. Quality you can depend on from a brand you can trust. That's Smith Creek.
1: So let's move right along into Strike Zone rides. Yeah. I think you know early on in some of the first books and, and things you read, articles maybe, they emphasize how important it is to bottom bounce. And there's that old saying that if you ain't ticking, you ain't sticking, or, right. or any sort of variation of that term, meaning yeah. that... <laughs> If you're not losing flies or if you're not hanging up and breaking off, you're not where the fish are.
0: Yeah, so I believe that was the only way. And it took many years of fishing and one major revelation to realize that I'd been using the bottom really as a crutch. So somewhere in a Joe Brooks book, and this is kind of the revelation, I read about the strike zone, and Brooks didn't use that term. He called it a current of water that was like a separate stream at the bottom of the river. It's a good concept, a good way of thinking about it. That stream, he said, is where the trout spend most of their time, and so do the bugs and the bait fish. Like all the good things in a river happen in this strike zone. Brooks's text didn't describe gliding through the strike zone as the goal, but it got me thinking. Like, why touch the riverbed at all then? Why not attempt to drift my nymph in that stream at the bottom of the riverbed, that strike zone? No matter how thin it is, why not make that the goal instead of bouncing the bottom? Don't be above the strike zone and don't be below it. You're kind of touching the bottom over and over either. So just glide the nymph through the strike zone. Easier said than done. And I've kind of been working on that ever since. For a while, I thought I kind of had the magic bullet because when I started doing that, it really started to work better. And I thought, oh, here, this is going to be the best presentation all the time. But it's not. Strike zone rides are just one of the three ways to dead drift, but it's a good one. So let's walk through it.
1: Yeah, I love that. The, uh, what you just said there of a, a different current of water separate from the stream, mm. you know, near the river bottom. Oh, yeah. that's really cool. Mm-hmm. You don't happen to remember what book that is from Joe, I don't, do you?
0: I don't. I think it was Big Trout, Searching for Big Trout. I, mm That's not it. Oh, well, it didn't help you then. I've given away a lot of books. I loaned books to you and you never <laughs> give them back. I'm kidding. And the other guys, I don't know. <laughs> I can't, I can't find it. If I buckled down, I could find it for you. Yeah. I didn't have that many Joe Brooks books. I think I had two. So it had to be one of the two I had.
1: So nymphs of all types glide through the strike zone, right? Caddisflies, mayflies, stoneflies, midges, crest bugs, whatever they might be. Um, They probably glide through the strike zone more than they kind of bang their head around against rocks down there. What do you think?
0: (laughs) Yeah, like we said, they're neutrally buoyant. They're not, you know, they're not really really trying to go up. It's not that violent. No, it's not that violent down there. We don't think, anyway, until they're you eating. You just made
1: that video, and I didn't hear any nymphs screaming as they uh, slammed into rocks down there.
0: <laughs> That's right. Couldn't hear the My studs on the, won't hold on the on. riverbed either, though. <laughs> little yeah. nymph feet. You like that. You like little nymph feet. got the wrong sneakers on. They need studs. That mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> was the highlight of the podcast for me so far.
1: <laughs> Doesn't get any
0: better than this. Right. They're... So when they do let go or they get dislodged, when they lose that foothold, it's <laughs> the feet again. <laughs> hey, no. They probably glide through that bottom current naturally in the strike zone. Like we said, not dropping, kind of waiting to grab the next thing. This natural glide through the zone of water where trout and the bugs spend most of their time and a bait fish too. It makes a lot of sense. And for me, the strike zone rides are my most productive method. You agree with that or?
1: i do agree and i I think i think for me they are the most natural drift because they uh they don't come into contact with anything and they're Mm -hmm. mostly moving on their own uh free will
0: yeah yeah i mean day-to-day strike zone rides uh just produce the best for me you get to fish cleaner than bottom bouncing and i just yeah i do think perhaps it's the most common thing that they eat down there Nymphs just going along like we're talking about. That said, I also think it's the most difficult method. You're talking about a zone of water that is not that tall yeah. down there. Six inches, maybe ten. It's not more than a foot tall off the riverbed. It probably is not in very many places.
1: Right. You're kind of trying to shoot a gap between being too mm-hmm. high and then bottom mm-hmm. bottom bouncing or touching on the bottom. You're trying to ride right between there.
0: That's exactly it. Yep. Keep them from dropping too much and, and you don't want to be up above them too much either. Because a lot of times trout will not come out of that strike zone to eat the flies. So what about rigging for strike zone?
1: Yeah, so rigging for strike zone is really important to make any of that work. Um, We don't want to waste half our drift on a long drop time if the strike zone is a target. Because again, the strike zone is a very specific piece of water. And if we're only reaching it at the very end or the the back half of the drift, we're already behind. Um, So we want to choose flies or weights, you know, split shot. um, And use Mm -hmm. a casting style, especially that gets the nymphs down quickly um but aren't too hard to keep them off the bottom.
0: Yeah, the nymphs themselves kind of matter sometimes too. Um
1: That's a good point.
0: N- you know, nymphs that uh will have a slower drop rate. Some well, you want to get down in there, but once I'm in there, I don't want them to keep dropping, right? <laughs> so I tend to <laughs> use yeah. uh for my point flies, the ones that I really want down in there, a lot of times I just fish one nymph too. I I do. I use a lot of flies with dubbing and legs. Um chenille honestly a mop fly is a really good fly for gliding through the strike zone you're trying to get down in there quick so you need some weight but then if it just keeps falling like a perdigon or something you know that has has no material resistance right. to it that fly just wants right. i don't care how light it is it just wants to keep falling through that strike zone we're trying to get it in that strike zone to kind of anchor into that zone not to the bottom but lock in to that zone
1: and that said i think we could probably get most flies to work in the right conditions Mm -hmm. now that protagon may work well if uh oh yeah you know you're at a different flow or if it's weighted differently uh you can get things to work but you just have to kind of experiment and and see what it takes again you'll notice it'll be obvious if you're too high in the column uh your flies will be getting washed downstream faster than you'd like them to be and if you're too low then you'll just be ticking up and getting hung up and then you know you need to be a little uh little lighter or, or cast differently
0: yeah, there's definitely a wide variety of weight that'll work at any one moment, and it's up to you to kind of make it work. Now, that said, that, that works best on a tightline rig, right? If you're fishing an indie rig, it takes more adjustment in between casts. It'll work just as well, but you need to adjust. You have to be really willing to adjust in between casts. Well, I need to slide that indie up so I can get deeper. I need to slide the indie down to be shallower. I need to add weight, take away weight. But if you're tightlining, you can do many of those adjustments in the next cast, right? Before we move on, we should point out uh, how we know that we're in the strike zone.
1: Yeah, great question. So there's a couple things we're looking for uh, when we want to ask ourselves if we're in the strike zone. Uh, the first thing is, is visual, and that yeah. is just watching the surface of the water and watching our uh, leader and cider, especially if you're fishing with an all-mono system. Yeah. Uh, we can watch the currents and the bubbles and all the moving parts on the surface start to pass up our cider. We're going to see that cider slow down, kind of set into the riverbed a little bit. It'll kind of anchor itself and you'll see it uh, just go a different pace than what's going on on the surface. That's a great indicator.
0: Yeah. And the indie itself, if you're fishing an indie mm-hmm. system instead, of course, the indie then slows down slower than the bubbles. Now, you can trust that. If you're not uh, influencing the indicator, if the Indy, if everything gets starts in one seam, that's why we're building through these skills, right? We talked how it's so important to have everything in one seam, no matter if you're under an indie or if you're tight line, start it all in one seam, then you can trust it. You know, keep extra line off the water and then extra influence off the indie and off of the system. And then you can trust it. And when you know you can trust it and you see the slowdown, well, dang, nothing else slowed it down. Yeah, It's that the fly got in the strike zone. You will often see, oh, the slowdown, and it's slower, it's slower, and bam, then I touch. Right on. And over, it might take you thousands of times, honestly, to see that, whether it's under an indie or it's on the tight line, and you start to realize, all I'm doing is dropping through that strike zone. I'm not gliding through it. Mm-hmm. What can I do to lengthen that drift in the strike zone and actually get these strike zone rides? Right on.
1: And if you go back and listen to the the previous few episodes of this series, we go into further depth on uh, what those strike zone rides look like on a cider versus an indie. Last week, we talked about suspension devices and, you know, we got pretty into the weeds on that. So lots of good stuff to go look at.
0: For sure. Not trying to talk about it all at once. we definitely, we're building through these skills and uh, they're kind of stacking on top of each other. Wait till we get to the end. There'll be so much to remember. <laughs> You'll never remember it. <laughs> I'll never remember. <laughs> I'm going to catch so many fish tomorrow. No, you won't. Josh and I are gone. Who's going to catch more? No, you're not.
1: Yes, we are. Is Josh filming?
0: Yeah, Josh and I are filming a bit. Well, then and we're going
1: to fish. Okay, so it's not a film trip. We're going to film. Josh gets to fish. <laughs> we're going to film a little. <laughs> he needs to get a drone shot for the last video. Depends who's got the magic egg. That's who What's wins. The magic
0: egg? Oh, the magic <laughs> egg pattern. Yeah. I was thinking like a magic eight ball oh, in the no. shape of an egg. Yeah, yeah we'll whoever's got
1: the egg wins. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. I got a magic egg. <laughs> I'm going to tie more of those after this podcast. Yeah, All right, All right. Don't distract. This is a skill series. Mm. This, uh, we stay on target. No joking around. So the third way to get a great dead drift on a nymph that looks like a natural presentation down there is what we call tracking the floss. So contact is king, right? That's the way I thought about tight line nymphing at first. <laughs> it's true. For the most part, that adage still holds true. And I'd rather lean on the side of more contact than less in most situations because one of the primary advantages that makes tight line principles so effective in the first place is good strike detection. And with less contact, then strike detection suffers exponentially. But as the years passed and I kept nymphing and watching the results, I noticed that some trout would eat on the drop as the nymphs were dropping even more than they would eat on the drift, you know, once I kind of kept them going. Once I got them into the zone and kept them going, kept them going, I'm calling that the drift. A lot of times they'd eat on the drop more. So let's think about this. Two things happen when your nymph hits the water. It drops to depth, and then it should, ideally, drift at that depth. Now, you could just fish a a drop all the time, but you might not want to, right? So when I'm bottom bouncing, I I don't want to waste time with a drop. And I'd rather get the nymphs to the bottom quickly, very quickly. And then you need that extra weight too to kind of keep you on the bottom and get that slower ride. Same thing with the strike zone. Similar thing with the strike zone. I want it in that strike zone for as long as possible. And you brought this up. So I don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste half my drift. Right on. With weights that are too light. And then I'm not getting down into my target zone until my drift is halfway over or more, Mm -hmm. right? Let's say too, a lot of times trout need to see the nymph coming four or five, six, maybe 10 feet to actually eat it. Just appearing in front of their face at the last second might not get it done, right? Yeah, I agree with that. So when I noticed that trout were eaten on the drop, it only made sense to extend that drop time then and to try to hold it in that middle zone for longer too. So I started going lighter with my rigs. Of course, I'm not the only one who does that. But I call this tracking the flies. Because it is, it's different. So I like to have a name for things. And tracking <laughs> then is another way that flies can look like a natural drift to the trout. Now let's walk through this one, the third
1: way. So it sounds like a great idea, right? And, sure. and for certain, you know, tracking can be the key to success on some days, not all, but yeah. on on some for sure. Uh, it works most consistently when bugs are active. So That's if it's fair. during an emergence, if it's, it's springtime, whatever it may be, if if bugs are making their way up from the bottom to the mid-column, to the upper-column, to the surface. That's when tracking, I think, really lends itself to being a, a, a more successful tactic. Um, you know, there's, there's less weight involved uh, in these. And because we're sometimes fishing these lighter flies, potentially in some faster water, there is less contact or less direct contact there. Mm. And less weight results in less direct control uh, from the angler. Uh, more control from the river, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, more decisions are from the currents than the rod tip.
0: Yeah, we talked about all that in the podcast. We we're talking about um, more influence or less. That's, mm-hmm. that's the heart of the whole thing. And with this tracking concept, we're trying to have a lot less influence. We're trying to let the river make the decisions. And like you said, we're in less contact and therefore less control. That's a good thing and a bad thing, remember? You just go back if you didn't listen to that one yet. I'll say too, I think tracking the flies is the easiest of these three methods to get right.
1: Hmm. You think so? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it could be the hardest. Tell me why. Well, I think uh, because there's less direct contact with those nymphs mm. and maybe more uh, control from the currents themselves, it can be difficult to keep an awareness of where the flies are through the drift. Mm. And I think you can easily fall behind or uh, mm. end up too far ahead of where you think your flies are in uh, in certain situations. So I'm not sure if it's the mm. easiest or not. Maybe the second easiest. <laughs>
0: That's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But for me, I think of it as the easiest because I don't have to make any decisions. I'm trying to let the river make the decisions. Yeah. Like you
1: said, maybe that's not so easy. Um, maybe it's easier to miss takes, I think. I think it's easier to miss takes because there's... Mm, uh, good point. Yeah, you know, there's it's not a, a straight line or a tight line really anymore. There is more grace built into that because you're trying to get the most natural, most movement uh, from the, the current as possible. Mm. So... When those fish eat, they're often quick and fast eats in that moving water. And if you're, if you're not really up to, if you're not really tracking cleanly and efficiently, you can uh, go without noticing a lot of those.
0: Those are good points. I think it's easier in this way too. You're, you're not trying to touch the bottom. And hopefully, well, if you're tracking, you really shouldn't be touching the bottom. Right. Over and over and over, you can have one drift after another that never touches. Because the goal isn't, you know, to be touching the bottom. The goal isn't even the strike zone. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to get a longer drop and you're just trying to let the river you know, carry the nymph along and yeah. to make that happen we're acknowledging you need lighter flies the strike detection then in some ways is easier you were just talking about how it's harder which is a good point but it, it, you, there's less guessing right? When you're in the strike zone, you might tick a rock and you go, mm, uh, mm. I'm pretty sure that's a rock. <laughs> and so you don't set. And you have, to, you have to guess, is that a rock? Is that a fish? Is that a rock? Is that a fish? When you're bottom bouncing, you have even more guessing to do. Rock, rock, tree part. Oh, I should have set. That was a fish. You know? Yeah. That, that's a pretty tough job. But if you're tracking, you basically set on anything, any unnatural move, movement of the cider or the indie
1: yeah I think that's really fair. You know if you're assuming that the drift is clean and you're doing a, a good right. efficient job of of tracking the flies, then it should be the most obvious because there really shouldn't be anything to disrupt its path uh besides the the random tree limb or something you can't see that high up in the in the column, but you're right that's that's a good point
0: it's right on so we're saying we're trying to have less influence over the nymph and yet still have contact yeah. <laughs> That's a tough one. You try, we're trying to ride that line. It's like trying uh-huh. to ride the strike zone. That's tough too. Exactly. All these things are a fine line. One key trick or, or something I've said to a lot of my guests, my guided clients, I never know what to call them, Austin. Are they guests or the clients? Friends. What are they? They're fishermen. They're friends. Anyway, one key trick I've told people and they seem to connect with is to think about leading the tippet and not the flies. Hmm. The flies are attached to the tippet. Again, if we're on a tight line system then, think about, putting the tippet in the right place so that it does not influence the nymph very much.
1: <laughs> that's good. Yeah, sometimes I think uh, maybe we rely on the nymph to correct the tippet when that's uh, mm. that's backwards.
0: Do it back, yeah, exactly. Do it the other way. That's yeah. cool. All right, so rigging for tracking. This third way, how do we rig for it?
1: Yeah, uh, so like we said, the, the flies are lighter and it also helps to have thinner tippet in this because it allows for a more uh, realistic presentation, especially if you're fishing in some, uh, faster water can help kind of uh, cut down through the column a little bit quicker, allow for a more natural drop, uh, throughout the drift. I agree with that
0: about the tippet. I will say, I don't feel like I need 7X or 8X. I feel like I get it done with 6X, even 5X. I feel like I'm fine. 4X mm-hmm. starts to get a little heavy or a little thick for this tracking concept for me. The, the weight of the flies matters too. But again, I'm usually using lighter flies. That's probably probably why I feel like 3X or 4X is a little thick yeah. for uh, the tracking. I'm not saying you can't do it. And you really should try it because oh, Bill pointed it out not too long ago that sometimes he'll use thicker tippet to slow the drop rate. And if we're trying
1: yeah, that's true.
0: you know, there's a lot to it.
1: Yeah, 5X and 5 to 6X is kind of the sweet spot there for me as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Whether it's after a fishing trip or at a backyard fire, you can bet the Troutbitten crew has a case of New Trail Broken Heels along with us. It's honestly our favorite beer. This hazy IPA is smooth and full-bodied. Hand-selected citra hops lead to notes of bright clementine and juicy ruby red grapefruit. Broken Heels is a keeper. New Trail beer is proudly brewed in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and delivered cold to your favorite craft beer retailer every week. At New Trail, it's not about being the best angler. It's about getting out there. So enjoy nature's moments and reward yourself for a day well fished with new trail, Broken Heels. It's Troutbitten's favorite beer. To tie the best flies, you need the best materials. With decades of commercial fly tying experience, Fooling Mill understands what it takes to tie a great fly. Over the past several years, they've worked hard to source and prepare a range of fly tying materials that will elevate your experience at the Vice. Fooling Mill fly Time materials have arrived, with a range of over 1,400 products. You'll find the staples like marabou, bucktail, and rabbit sonker strips. You'll also find CDC, stripped peacock quills, 12 dubbing ranges, synthetics, chenilles, yarns, and wools. All fooling Mill materials come in an extensive range of colors that are consistently dyed. So what you receive from them tomorrow will be the same color next year their materials go through a rigorous quality control process. So before they're packaged and shipped out, you can be sure they're up to the highest quality standards. Ask for Fooling Mill fly tying materials at your local dealer or find them online at foolingmill.com.
1: Also, the other thing that you mentioned before is the materials that we build the flies out of. Mm, Uh, So, you know, not just light, but you may have a, you may have a size 10 fly that Is, you know, dubbing or uh, something that has resistance and friction to it itself kind of act like a a bit of a parachute effect uh, where you can slow things down, but still fish a larger fly if you want to. They don't have to be small to be light.
0: No, they don't. They don't have to be real small. I will say that when I do the tracking idea, I tend to keep going lighter and lighter and smaller and smaller with my flies. Um, But you make a great point. You could use a big rubber legs and do this, but the Mm -hmm. rubber legs, you probably shouldn't weigh a whole lot.
1: Right. Exactly. And you're kind of defeating the purpose.
0: Yeah. You go, you want to know what your goals are. What are you shooting for? Right. Which one of these three ways? That's good. I liked that. So anything else, Austin?
1: Sure. You know, we're talking about concepts, but the other yeah. thing that kind of on the other side of concepts is skills. Right. Hand in hand with the concept of leading flies is… yeah the skill of tracking or guiding flies, right? Yeah, and and yeah. that might be something in between or you know a a skill that's built into a concept.
0: Yeah, it all kind of goes together eventually,
1: right? Mm-hmm. But
0: not trying to make it any more complicated than it is. And I know we get accused of that. <laughs> we we also enjoy the details, right? But yeah. you uh, 3 or 4 years ago now I wrote a series, a short series on trout pitting about uh, leading versus tracking versus guiding the flies. Mm-hmm. And back then, it's kind of how I was thinking about it. And trying to, just trying to describe the ways that really what we're talking about here, the three ways of dead drifting. And th- those are your skills. Are you going to lead them? Are you going to track them? We're kind of in between those two. You're going to try to guide them along. Right. You can go back and read those articles. Right. I'll link to them in the show notes. And let's say... You might think that, okay, if I'm gonna lead the flies, if I'm gonna actively try to move the flies downstream, help them along and lead them, then that goes best with uh, bottom bouncing or strike zone. Once you get in the strike zone, lead them right through. On. It does, right? I, I think it does. And then, well, yeah, I started using that term tracking back then. And while well, we just went over what tracking is and that, you know, trying to have less influence. And then I say like guiding the flies is kind of in between the two we have said all along that it's not like there's just defined lines that separate all these things. Okay. I'm just bottom bouncing. Okay. Now I'm only strike zone riding or I'm only tracking the flies. You're going to be tracking the flies and they're going to slip right into that strike zone real nice for you. And you're going to go, Ooh, let's just keep them there. If I don't do something, they're just going to keep dropping. There's a lot of slipperiness, you know, in between, or if you're from Pittsburgh, there's a lot of slippiness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. It's true, slippy. But, you know, like we said at the very beginning, it's it's cool to break them down into these three steps because you may only think about one, but what you just mentioned there is very active. You know, you may start uh, uh, leading and then you end up on a strike zone ride. And then mm-hmm. towards the end, you're bottom bouncing just a little bit sure. until you set and set the next uh, cast up. So it's good to be able to go through the whole process and through all the uh, options there in one drift.
0: It is. Like we said, you want to know what your goal is. What are you really trying to do? And things are going to happen in between. Yeah. That said, if I really am just trying to track the flies, I don't want to slip into that bottom bouncing at the end. Like to me, that would just be, well, I didn't achieve my goal. I'm trying to stay real clean when I'm mm. when I'm uh, tracking. And when I'm doing strike zone rides, sure. like you said, I don't want to waste half of my drift trying to get down into that strike zone. Defined goals, but then mm-hmm. there's uh, some slippiness in between. She's slippy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Especially on transitional waters too, where your drift may start in a fast run and and end Mm -hmm. in something that's completely different.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's all pretty neat to think about. I like uh, kind of breaking it down this way.
1: All right. There it is. The three
0: ways to dead drift nymphs. One, two, and three. Remember, there is no best way to do this. All three methods are valid and useful because when we think of getting a good dead drift on our nymphs, we should also consider the target zone. Is it the bottom, the strike zone, or somewhere in the middle? And do we wanna have more influence over the flies or less? With the complexity of currents in three dimensions underneath the water, the nymphing angler has more decisions to make, more techniques to consider, and a bigger puzzle to solve. Let the trout and their rivers be your guide. Learn which method gains the most response from trout in different scenarios. Test things out. Work on your deficiencies and satisfy your curiosities by fishing all three of these methods. Then you can answer more questions and solve more mysteries on the river. All right, we have three more episodes in this critical nymphing skills series. And next time we're talking about weight, the fundamental factor. <laughs> so Staff Sergeant of Trout and Media, Austin Dando, will you read us out? Do <laughs>
1: <laughs> Please. <laughs> Remember, the Trout Bitten Project is a free resource for all anglers. The Trout Bitten website hosts over 1,000 articles with endless stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Bam. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags, too. Be sure to find the Trout Bitten YouTube channel, currently featuring... <laughs> See, I went into the old one. I started reading what's not there. Oh, your brain. <laughs> You're not even old it's yet. Smarter than I thought. Be sure to find the drop in YouTube channel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that wasn't a mistake. Now featuring
1: the Trout Pit in tip series, the fish and film series, and the Trop in fly box, all in collaboration with the wonderful Wild Media. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to the It in podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave a comment because it really helps. It does. Until next time, friends, fish hard. Enjoy the day and find your life on the water.
0: that
1: yeah i can't stand that i know it's dumb i didn't hear any nymphs screaming as they uh slammed into rocks down there
0: (laughs) my feet won't hold on i got the wrong sneakers on doesn't get any better than this just a minute joey i'm in the middle of a podcast stop it yes
1: (laughs) i heard you (laughs) i'm in the middle of a podcast